The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 129 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own and not my present or past employers. I would never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment. I never, never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I remind our listeners you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. And just a reminder, folks, we're on at least a, a dozen different playback mediums now, and you can listen to any episode you like at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe just by visiting www.tf7radio.com. So we're really trying to get a lot of people to go to the site and listen to the episodes on the site because we've got a lot of different things going on there. It's www.tf7radio.com. Please visit the site, and whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. You can subscribe right from the site. So we got a special guest with us this evening. Rafael Loss is going to be with us tonight. Rafael is, is the founder of Rabbit77, and he's also the host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. Uh, so he, he is very well known in the industry. His podcast has been around for a while. He's an industry innovator, strategist, and he's a well-known cybersecurity personality. His career spans 20 years while working inside companies from the Fortune 10 to a firm of less than 10 people. So it really runs the gamut in terms of the scope and scale of the, the, the jobs that he's had. Rafael's strengths include strategic leadership, developing and refining market strategies, business process optimization, and bringing people together to solve very complex problems. Most recent achievements include assisting a company in its pivot from infrastructure provider to security as a service by developing a pre-sales strategy and developing professional services framework, implementing significant changes in business process that led to the company's ability to measure the impacts of various efforts on the sales cycle itself. So, Rafael is an active member of the Security Advisor Alliance, uh, serving on the advisory board with the intent of creating innovative ways for security leaders to give back to their communities through service and knowledge sharing. Additionally, Rafael is the founder and host of Down the, the Security Rabbit Hole podcast. It's a great podcast, by the way. I listened to several episodes. It's an industry podcast, and he delivers it weekly. Uh, in a in a friendly a very friendly format since 2011, so I know what it takes to deliver a weekly podcast every week and come up with content, good content that people come back and listen to. Like this show, he's been doing it since 2011, nine years. That is, there's something to be said for that. Okay, the guy's very talented. 
Uh, the podcast includes thought leadership and industry experts from government advisors, industry founders, and everyone in between. You really got a great show. Rafael's career is more about uh, is is about more than being a recognizable expert, though. His he brings people together to solve complex problems in innovative ways, forming relationships and continually sharing his hunger for knowledge. Rafael's a great speaker, folks, and this is going to be a lot of fun. This is going to be a great interview. So let's get to it. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the show the founder of Rabbit Seventy Seven and host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast, Mr. Rafael Loss. Rafael, welcome to Task Force Seven Radio. Hello, hello, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, folks. Hey, it's great to have you on the show. I was just telling the folks, uh, obviously, about your, your extensive background in cybersecurity and how you got started, and you know, tell us a little bit about your journey here. How did you get started in cybersecurity, and how did you end up where you are today? Well, I, uh, my background goes and my journey goes back to before it was cybersecurity was a thing. Uh, back in the mid to late 90s, you know, uh, putting together white box PCs and, and uh, looking at networking from a slightly different perspective, uh, my curiosity kept driving me. So I kept, uh, I kept moving. Uh, I was at a company that uh, I started out basically building white box Windows clones. Uh, got interested in the, in the stuff that they were doing in the back office, you know, working with customers, uh, going out and installing servers. Of course, servers by servers, I mean. Uh, digiboards and uh, old Acer Altos machines, and for those of you that are really old will know what that is, uh, Skull uh, Unix from way, 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 way back uh, before all the lawsuits and, and the irrelevance. And, um, you know, back when you had to uh, essentially sacrifice a, uh, a, a small disk, uh, and I mean those giant floppy, you know, five and a quarter or bigger, uh, to hope that the hard drive, once you powered it up, you know, tap it a couple times so it powered back on, uh, and it just kept getting interesting. You know, I, security to me wasn't a discipline I dove into. I, I, I got about into it about the way I think uh, I'd like most people to at least think about it. Uh, I learned how computers function at their basic level, right? Uh, processors, memory, uh, signals, uh, the types of cards, interconnects, and all that. Uh, I, I went into the... Um, the, the server world, uh, again, uh, Acer, Altos, uh, SCO, uh, Novell, remember Novell? Yeah. Uh, the world's most stable operating <laughs> system that nobody could figure out how to maintain because it was like, <laughs> there's nothing to do. Just turn it on and it worked for years and years. Um, God, I miss Novell. Um, and, and, uh, and, and it just got interesting, right? And I re- ended up ran, running cable. Um, I remember uh, a very particular uh, – in particular, uh, I met a good friend and, and, and re- reconnected friend uh, this way. Uh, I was running, um, converting Windows 3.1.1 to Windows 95 workstations at a, at a career center at a local college out in uh, northwestern uh, rural-ish Illinois and uh, converting BNC networks. You guys remember those? When if you forgot to put the cap on the thing, the packets fell out one of the w- end of the wires and uh, you didn't, not like Ethernet, we could just plug it in randomly. It's a beautiful world. Um, I don't know. I just kept going. Uh, got into. I was the world's worst developer for like 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, I learned. Uh, I was actually fairly good with C, like ANSI C, the hardcore. Uh, you know, you have to have strict syntax adherence and all that. C. Uh, I was terrible at Cold Fusion. For those of you that remember that programming language from, I want to say 99, 2000 timeframe. Um, uh, you know, I learned uh, in school 
Uh, I learned Snowball, Ada, Latex, uh, Pascal, Turbo Pascal, HyperCard, and all sorts of fun things that nobody has any idea what the hell I'm saying. Except for those of you that are really, really old. George, you remember some of these, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> some of them. Some of them, right? <laughs> and, then, and then it just kind of progressed. Um, I, I ran a, a bit a support desk for a bit. Uh, I, I um, maintained servers. I built them. Um, I was a systems engineer. Uh, I, I was a network and router jockey. So I moved stuff around, uh, moved packets around, designed uh, networks that accidentally loop back into themselves every once in a while. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then I had to make a career choice and, and, you know, uh, 9-11 really just before that really, uh, gave me an opportunity to go dive into something that was full time security. Um, it was information security, you know, configuring, uh, firewalls and learning checkpoint and doing some very, very, very basic, uh, software security, web app security and forensics. And from there it just kind of grew on me. So I, I got, that's a really long winded way of saying I got a lot of foundation on how the building blocks of things work, which makes it easier for me to understand when they break or at a large scale, how they should function. So it seems you started out really the, I don't want to say the right way, but almost in the ideal way where you're able to really have that practical experience, that practical technical experience. Yeah. Building the stuff and, and, and you're in the weeds this way as your career progressed, it seemed like you were in in a perfect position to tackle some of these security issues because you understood the, the infrastructure, you, under, you understood how everything was architected. I mean, when you came to that fork in the road in your career where you had to choose whether you're going to stay deeply technical because, you know, these, these, these skills expire over time, <laughs> they right? Do. They do, right? And, and you got to keep on top of this stuff or move into a more strategic or leadership role. And I even want to say business role. You know, how did you make that choice? Uh, actually the choice basically was made for me, quite frankly, not, not quite so dramatically, but as you already said, these skills expire rapidly. Right. And, um, you know, so back in the early two thousands, late nineties, one could be a security specialist and, uh, know how to use Perl to, you know, connect to systems and make system calls and, and, and write some very basic programming language, uh, program apps type stuff. Um, that, you know, move data and packets around. Uh, and then you could also configure a firewall, go install some antivirus, uh, use a, um, a forensics tool to go do some analysis. And, and you could do all those things with relative certainty that you could have some deep knowledge in them because they weren't so deep. Today, there are, I mean, the, expert, the, the expertise has gone extremely deep and extremely wide. It's, it's impossible for anybody to be a, general, a generalist anymore. So I had to pick. Um, I, I looked at it, and frankly, you know, admittedly, I'm not the most the smartest guy in the world. I'm not the most technical person in the world. And keeping up with this stuff, I always found it fun. So when it got, you know, uh, I, I tried for a while to stay as much of a generalist as I could realize that was probably going to fail at that. And I had an opportunity. I was working as an engineer uh, at General Electric, uh, G Power down in Atlanta with a couple of friends. Um, and I had the opportunity to take a, a, a new role. And that role was going to be to head up the uh, development of a software security program internally uh, at a different part of the business. And uh, I, I jumped at it. You know, it, it, it allowed me at the time to continue to stay relatively technical, albeit in software security, web app security, really. Um, but it, it allowed me to build some new muscle uh, to go, uh, dare I say, uh, learn some essential skills. Essentially, 
as a technologist, I was right, you were wrong because I could prove to you that I could go break that web app by issuing th this command and the SQL server would respond in this manner and haha, I've hacked you, you're dumb, right? Uh, more on that later. But I, I quickly and uh, necessarily adapted to that world where I started realizing it's not so simple. It's not as simple as being binary, it's secure, it's not. Uh, and I watched businesses struggle with implementing cyber measures uh, from a security perspective that didn't make sense to them, that didn't, like, uh, you know, they were spending a million to protect a dollar, like that kind of thing. And I realized that this was something I was, I was uh, naturally drawn to. Uh, considered, I looked at it and said, you know, I can, I can be the mediator between those that are much smarter than me and much more technically adept than I, than I can keep up and maintain, and those that have no idea what any of that language means but have a business to run. And so that being that mediator kind of put me on the path I'm at today. And I'm, it's pretty exciting. I mean, it was a, it was a fairly hard left turn for a while. Uh, and I made it fairly early on, I think. Uh, but I'm glad I did. Do you think this is a choice that, that people still have to make today in their careers? I do. Uh, I think they have to make it more profoundly even today. Um, mm. I think, uh, you know, you, you can, you can be disappoint, right? Where you can, your career, assuming now there's nothing wrong with doing a very, very, like if you want to be a forensics person and you can be a forensics expert forever, that's your thing. That's perfectly cool. Uh, I applaud you. I could not, I could simply could not do that. I can't keep up um, with all the technical nuances and all the new things and everything that comes at you. You know, when they say life comes at you fast, InfoSec comes at you faster. Um, but I think people still have to make that choice because you have to decide um, which it, it's not like you can disconnect. It's not like suddenly somebody that wants to go down the CISO or adv executive advisor type of or consultant path necessarily says, I'm just going to forget about all the tech. You can't, it's, it's impossible, but you have to decide whether you're going to continue to hyper specialize and specialize, or if you want to pull up and try to solve, um, you know, if you want to figure out how to put the circuits together or figure out how, how to how to make the uh, make the computer work right? So I think that's a choice people still need to make today. Uh, I think they do it every day, and I think that there is a. It, it's interesting because it kind of ties into the. Um, I, I try to you know do as much mentoring and give back as much as I can. I still get a lot of these. You know, I'm getting out of college, or I'm, I'm want to join an enterprise right. information security teams or cybersecurity, uh, and uh, I want to go. I want to go hack things. I want to go be a red teamer. I want to go pen test. And, uh, and I, a couple of times found myself saying, God, we really need more pen testers. The answer is probably sure we could use more. Uh, I think what we, personal opinion, don't hate me for it. I think we have enough of that. What I think we need is more of is people that know how to make sense between the, the people that run a business that know what it, what risk actually means. And those of us that have the skill to make sure that that one thing doesn't do, that does just that thing you're asking it and nothing else. You know, I, I'm not going to get mad. As a matter of fact, I couldn't agree with you more. I've been, I say that on the show a lot. And I think we need people that, that think in the terms of risk and information security. Um, we just don't have enough of them. And we don't. We really we don't. don't. We don't. And I, I, I'm a, I have this conversation all the time. And it seems to me that I haven't had someone yet come on the show. And I'm sure I'll get someone to come on the show that says, yes, the, the CISO should be an engineer and a, and a technologist and, you know, 
not somebody who really doesn't have those strong risk and business skills. We don't need those. We just need technology. But you find them. They won't come on the show and say it. But I'll tell you, there's a lot of people out there like that. They're just, they love That's this right. stuff. They love the show, their technical prowess, right? And just, but I mean, when it comes to business and you, you put these people in a Fortune 500 company, I don't, I mean, I just, I, I, I don't see it. Unless you really focus on diversifying your skill set, um, I don't see it. I really don't see it. Would you make the same choice today? If you had to I, 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 I would. I, I, I'm, gl- I'm very happy with what I, so I went from solving, uh, and I'll tell you a quick story before I move on though. I'll, I'll answer the question. So yes, I would make the same choice today primarily because I get to solve problems. Uh, I, I, I've always, when, when that show Dr. House came on, uh, House MD, if you guys remember that show listening, yeah, yeah. Um, Hugh Laurie was brilliant in it. And, and I loved, I gravitated towards that. I couldn't wait for the next episode. Of course, all my, uh, all, all my medical profession friends were like five minutes. and like, oh, I know what's going on. I'm like, stop it. Don't ruin it for me. Um, <laughs> but uh but I, I love to solve puzzles. I love to solve things that I can, I like to find patterns. I like to identify sort of where the broken is and, and sitting and ident- doing the same thing every day to me, to the way my brain works is, is infeasible. I like I, it. I can't like it doesn't, I, I can't continue to do that. So this kind of, this choice allowed me to go uh, get involved in a tremendous amount of different environments, different businesses, different problems, or even the same problem with just a tiny bit of nuance, which means it's different enough that it needs to be solved differently. Um, and you know, I, I, I'll tell you guys a story. Uh, a long, long, long time ago in a kingdom far, far away, uh, I was a wide-eyed, uh, bushy-tailed, I can, you know, uh, back when I was still a pen tester, uh, I want to say 2000, 2001, um, I went into uh, a, a CTO's office because uh, I, I, I halted the, de- the deployment of a web app that was, had been deemed critical by the business, and I was, I was not going to sign off on it because they had this problem in it. And uh, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm going to never forget this because I think this is kind of my turning point, really. Um, I, I'm sitting there, and uh, a bunch of conversation back and forth goes, and I'm arguing why this app should not go live, and they need to spend ex- you know another bunch of time to repair it and fix these issues. And I can't believe that they would go live with this or even think about you know releasing security bugs. And the conversation's kind of you know CTO smacks his uh, fist on the table and says, "Listen, I'm going to explain it to you simply, kid." He goes, "Without you, we can still continue to make money. Hell, without technology, I can break out the paper and pencil. We still do what we do." Without me, you don't get a paycheck. Are we clear? And I went, <laughs> noted, right? Which, which led me to the understanding of I was like, I knew I was right, but I wasn't conveying it properly. I was using technical terms. I was using terms that that guy who was a, you know, tried and true Jack Welch school of business kind of guy, like had no idea what I was saying. I might as well have been speaking a foreign language to him. Now, if, if I could have done it, if it was on me, if I, as the guy presenting the case, if I could have done a better job, he might've understood me. We probably would have come to a common ground. One, I had to be a little bit more flexible in, in my thinking, but that was the thing for me where I learned like, okay, this is not, I, I'm not going to have a very long career. My CISO pulled me aside afterwards. It was like, listen, <laughs> you're going to have a really, really short career here. If you keep that up, let me, let me, let me help. I still so talk you were, to Joe a lot, and then he, he's, he's been a he, he kicked my butt the right way. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> these conversations are enlightening, right? Because they really mean a lot in terms of how your career progresses, and if you're able to speak the language of the business, if you're communicating the people that you know, you, you, getting them to understand the message that you're trying to articulate. 
and we talked about this over, you know, before the show a little bit. And it was uh, about the question about, you know, business oriented versus the, 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 the technologist. And should yeah. a CISO be from the ranks of the techie moving up into leadership or a business oriented leader? And I think the, the, that answer has probably changed over the last 10 years. What are your thoughts? So funny enough, um, my entire, uh, not entire, a large chunk of my social media presence, my public presence, my um, speaking platform, my, uh, in fact, my podcast originated around that question. It was, a, it was, I want to say Memorial Day of like uh, 2011 or something like that, where I posed this question as I was about to leave for vac- for a long weekend. Uh, I think Dave Kennedy and I were arguing about it or something like should a CISO be somebody that came up from the ranks uh, as a technologist that then helps lead the technologists or should they be somebody that understands business and then hires technologists around them without really knowing the de- in depth the tech of the technology. Um, boy, you know, uh, I think personal opinion, I think that, while both of them are valid approaches, there's there's great cases to be made, and I have personally witnessed great case, and Dave being one of them, great cases where highly technical professionals became fantastic CISOs, 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 however you pronounce that, um, and then where <clears throat> the the other way, where somebody that uh, was a um, uh, you know, business strategist, somebody that, that had an MBA that, that was leading a, a business came down and took a, that knew some technology became the CISO uh, and then surrounded themselves with the right kinds of leaders and, and technologists to help them make decisions. And they were a great CISO. I, I probably think that given the way the world is moving, um, I continue to believe that the uh, the business to tech approach is probably more valid for a leadership position because of the fact that it's a leadership position, right? Uh, you don't uh, and and the argu- again you can make the argument really easily the other way, right? A CFO doesn't come in from a uh, some random career path. They're usually right. a CPA. They move up to a comptroller, VP of finance, and suddenly they're a CFO. But those are those are roles that are highly focused on business impact. Whereas for some reason, the field of cybersecurity um, continues to, and maybe it's because we're immature. I mean, you know, finance has been around, I don't know, what, 2000, 3000 years or so. Um, Cyber has been around for what, uh, 20, 25 or so, 30 maybe uh, on the onset. Like there's an order, there's a significant uh, double order of magnitude going on there. And Maybe it's because we're so immature, and we haven't. And by immature, I mean we haven't been around long. Uh, that we simply haven't quite reached that era, area where our uh, the pinnacle of who we are comes from uh, knowledge of of business and discipline. But um, I, I think that if you're going to be a, the best CISOs that I know, uh, consistently uh, come from knowledge of quotes the business or from business leadership that also have that have a techie background. You can't, obviously you can't show up and be a CISO and, and go, okay, so how do I, how do I log into this thing? Like that's not going to work. But um, someone that has at least a technical background, it comes from the business. I, I personally think that um, 
that's that. I, that's where I stood ten years ago. Gosh, longer about ten years ago, and that's where I stand today. I, I, I think the, the my experience in, in in my career has confirmed that for me. I kind of agree with you. I think there's always an optimal way of doing things. Uh, I, I I think those are the the optimal skill sets that you have in this position, especially with the challenges that CISOs face today and the, the diversity of thought that they need to have across the different lines of business and able to speak the common lexicon of risk to uh, executive leadership teams. And I also love uh, all these deputy positions that, that, that are around because I think the deputy position gives the organization uh, some balance. Um, and when you have these deputy CISO positions, if you have a CISO that's highly technical, you get a deputy that has a little bit more business skills than, you know, they still have the technical skills, of course. Like you said, it's very important to have both but they're, they can lean on those business skills, especially uh, those risk uh, analysis skills, communication skills. These soft skills are huge, you know, the ability to uh, negotiate and persuade people and lead people. So, and if it's the opposite, if that person's more business oriented as the CISO, then I think the deputy can come in and be more of a technologist. And when you have that balance and they work together as a team, uh, I think it's very effective. Well, so just to throw another point in there, uh, you, you made a fantastic uh, highlight of, of exactly kind of where my, my head's at with this is it's not about technology. It's about a lot of the time is about application of logic to um, true business risk analysis. And then those soft skills around communication and influence. It's the personality of the cybersecurity professional that is simply not geared towards that. And I'm not knocking it. I'm just saying that we're you know, we're introverts. We're largely people that aren't good with people. And it's hard to argue that point. Uh, and so you put somebody that has that extremely technical, deep background that simply doesn't like dealing with people in a position of leadership in a business, that he or she is going to categorically fail the end. No doubt, no doubt. Okay, folks, we've got to transition into a commercial break right here, but stick with us. Lots more to come here on this episode of Task Force 7 Radio. So if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family. We're going to pause some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the founder of Rabbit77 and host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast, Mr. Raphael Loss. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Signet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founder of Rabbit77 and host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast, Mr. Raphael Law. So, Raph, I want to talk a little bit about history here in the cybersecurity field. And no doubt the, the industry in, in cybersecurity has evolved over the last 20 years. We were just talking in the last segment that maybe it started about 25 years ago, give or take. 
What were some of the major turning points, you think, in the evolution of cybersecurity over the last two decades? So I think there's been a couple of fairly significant ones. And uh, I, I feel like the pendulum between edge and uh, you know, computing at the edge means something different today, but uh, essentially out to the client and then back to the server and out to the client and back to the server has, has ping-ponged a, a bit. Um, I think in my career, the first one really was the kind of everybody moving to Windows Server and T-Server, right? going from the, um, the model of green screens to true client-server networking. Uh, that was, uh, that was, I think, the first major one. And I think back then, we had, uh, and I'll make a bold statement, we had an opportunity to get it right. We had an opportunity to address security at the point where data lived, because it lived in only one place. It was always at the, cl at the server, right? And, and we knew where it went. Uh, you, you have to go up to it and pick it up to, physically to, to move it. Uh, and, and I think we missed that opportunity. And then it sort of swung as Windows came in, and I think, or maybe even before that, right, Novell was a, was a good example of this and, and the various uh, Unixes. Um, it pushed a lot of that computing uh, out into the, uh, into the client. And so the client became beefier, heavier processing power, pretty screens, right? Uh, graphics boards, mice, keyboards, all the pretty stuff. And it allowed, I think at that point, the horse, uh, the barn door was swung open and, and we never looked back. Um, and, and that's sort of when, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the, the security capabilities were simply not built into these, uh, into these compute models. We simply didn't do it. Uh, we threw antivirus on it and called it done. Um, then we realized we needed to patch and then we did that. But uh, th there was just very little going on. And then like this, this new, uh, new, the swing came back with a lot of virtualization, I think, um, or maybe even before, well, maybe even before that, right? Because you, you could still have your computer desktop at the office and that was still hard relatively hard compared to what it is today to move data around. And let's face it, ultimately in security, what do we care about? We care about data and business processes. Those are the two things that we care about. Everything else is ancillary. It's, it's, a, it's a means to an end. Right. Um, and, and, and do you guys, do you remember when you got, when the first Blackberry showed up? Yeah, I do. And the first Blackberry showed up and then like the pocket, um, pocket, uh, the PDAs, the pocket assistants started showing up, like your phone started being able to do more things. Like remember, you know, yeah. your address book and, and yeah. like get emails and holy moly. And again, horse out of the barn part two, right? Data suddenly found legs outside the office, but it was okay. Cause it was still relatively limited and it's not like you could do a whole lot with them. I remember I had uh, this little attachment on the back of my flip phone. And actually found it recently in my office. It's actually attached to the back, you know, to the flip phone and actually, you know, plugged into it. And then it had a whole bunch of data on it. And, you know, it was basically a, another device that attached to your phone to help your phone sort of evolve into that smartphone eventually. But I don't know if you remember those. Man, those that's, that's, that's been a lot. So I, I actually had a Blackberry and a Blueberry. <laughs> um, 
it was because it was blue. It was kind of cool. Um, I, you know, as a, as a computer guy at the company, I had to test out all the equipment, of course. <laughs> That's one of the yeah. perks of being a, right, right. a computer guy. You get all the gadgets. Um, right. But, but I think that was our next major move is because we had, we went to desktops and then laptops started showing up uh, for people that needed to be outside the office. And those were like execs or people that traveled. Uh, and stuff like that. But they were, let's face it, I mean, they were still just mobile desktops. Those were, those were the heavy luggable things. They weren't super, um, they weren't super portable and they were kind of a nuisance. And then the Blackberry showed up and the PDA showed up and then quickly thereafter, the evo- the rapid evolution of the laptop, uh, smaller and smaller, lighter and lighter, bigger and bigger, faster and faster. And then you had tablets and then, and it's over, right? And the data is, where is it? Everywhere. It's damn near everywhere. And it stayed like that for a while. I think that was another big, big turning point. And it stayed like that for a while until web apps became uh, web apps and then apps like phone apps became the predominant way of moving data and business process around. Uh, and then I think over the last you know decade or so, probably more succinctly, probably the last five to six years, the the full on embrace of cloud computing. Uh, has swung that pendulum again and, and we're you know we're back to sort of core um, and it's but it's you know the devices the end devices the edge devices are still highly built up it's now so cheap to run compute I, I guess cheap uh, in a in a specialized environment in somebody else's data center and you don't have to have a data center anymore but I think over those different steps we lost so much control. We had the opportunity. It was there. I remember being on a Twitter thread. I think I still have that. Chris Hoff was sending around his um, shared responsibility model. There's a Twitter thread going around uh, about you know who's going to take responsibility for what and and what's the model going to be like, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly, I'm go. You know, we're all going. Yes, this is security's opportunity to get involved at the time of inception of a new compute thing. We're going to get it right this time. Seven years on, crap, we missed it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think has been the biggest non-technology evolution in cybersecurity? Oh I mean, man, we talk so, about emerging technologies all the time, right? You have the, you know, the the smartphones and the and the personal computers and all this stuff that came out and it sort of changed the world. And now we're looking at artificial intelligence and quantum computing and, 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 and cloud. But so, you know, what, what is the biggest non-technology evolution you think? Um, so I think from the, from the perspective of, um, of a cybersecurity professional, I think the biggest uh, non-technology, right? So not, not product, not something you can sell, really has been the um, the drive to include cybersecurity at the board level. Uh, I think that has fundamentally changed the game for us uh, as security mm. professionals uh, and in that it has made us, forced us to be more aware of the businesses we support, our surroundings and understand like, you know, I, I, I joke about this, but risk for cybersecurity professionals is like the Inigo Montoya problem. Uh, you keep saying that word, but I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've heard people in cyber and in, in InfoSec use risk for, you know, 10, 15 years. And, and over all that span, I think I've probably got a handful of them that understand what that word actually means because it's, it, it, it's 
risk, you know, we make risk, Bruce Snyder once said, we make a million risk decisions before we get, get to the office in the morning, right? You, 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 you take a risk that when you get in your car that your fellow drivers on the road are going to decide to play bumper cars that day. You, you, another risk is that when you get in the elevator that you trust, right, that the, uh, uh, that the, uh, the, the company that maintains the elevator that you're in uh, has done their job and you're not just going to plummet to your death as soon as the door closes. Like these, these are, you know, calculated decisions that we make. We, we, uh, you know, when you go to turn the stove on, if you've got a gas stove, you trust that it's not going to, you know, leave a crater where you stand a second later. Like th these are, but the, but the business that you support as a cybersecurity professional uh, has, they make these risk decisions, they're calculated risk decisions every single minute of every single day. And the odds are they know that they, there are things that they are doing that are risky, but the outcome or the potential outcome outweighs you know, cost-benefit analysis, right? The, 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 the risk of, of something bad happening. And I go back to uh, the Intel processor Spectre meltdown models because people were losing their dang minds uh, over the fact that this thing existed. And, and while everybody... Uh, the news cycle was in full force. Every CISO I know was freaking out. Their boards were freaking out and, and people were in a hilarious panic. And it, I can't help but kind of go back to that mentally. And, and, and immediately I look at it to, to myself and think, while I understand that this is a very, it's a black swan type of event where it's something that like we knew as a potential possibility that somebody could compromise their technology, but it's such a, like nobody actually prepared for it. And while every company was freaking out about it and wondering, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? The reality is the ones that really needed to care about that were Microsoft, uh, Apple, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, Amazon, Google, right? The ones that ran compute and that built operating systems. The rest of us, like you can just kind of stare at it and go, all right. I mean, that's bad. Um, potentially though, because you know, what's the risk to the organization? And I think that uh, we don't fundamentally understand what that actually means. Yes, somebody could absolutely break into your system, read your CPU uh, instructions ahead of time, uh, and, and steal a ton of data, encryption keys and stuff and the like. But the series of events that had to happen for that to take place were, eh, let's just say non-trivial. In fact, they were, they were, they were pretty significant. Um, and, and to my knowledge, I could be wrong. And if I'm wrong, I apologize. But to my knowledge, there was never really, you know, a commonly exploitable, easily usable, readily available, publicly published type of exploit that anybody could just pick up and use in a pen test, which means that the threat model uh, that you built up for, for this thing, by the way, if you're not doing threat modeling, you're doing yourself a disservice and you, and you can't, you're not allowed to use the word risk until you understand threat models. Um, but people were freaking out about it that literally would, were never, ever going to see this impact them, except, uh, I, and I had this argument with somebody, uh, we may call it a debate because it wasn't like a nasty argument, it was a debate, like, well, what's the bigger risk? The fact that when they fix the problem, air quotes fix, suddenly uh, you're going to lose about 15 to 20, 25 on the, on the onset, uh, on the edge, uh, percent of your compute power? Or the fact that there's a tiny percent chance that if you're you know, a state-sponsored or highly organized threat actor will, will compromise you. I, to, to the average enterprise out there, medium-sized business SMB, the, 
the bigger problem was they're about to lose 25% of their compute power. Like what was, you know, if you're an Amazon or a Microsoft customer, all those instances you have were suddenly going to be 15 to 20% lighter than they, uh, than they were, you know, pre-patch. That's a worry. That's a real business impact worry because that drives your finance because that drives how much uh, consumption you have right? How much overhead you have that drives some very real uh, capacity decisions and discussions. Like, will somebody hack us? Was really far down the list for almost everybody except for some of the, you know, potential targets of organized crime and state-sponsored attacks. So, um, I, I think having us in the boardroom, uh, and I'm still answering that question, having us in the boardroom really, um, gives us that require I mean, it, it really solidified the ability for uh, for us to have visibility into what the business is doing but it also is is you know separating the wheat from the chaff really in some of the best CISOs in the world that I know right the uh, the Jason Whitties the Dave Eslicks out there the uh, Gary's the you know plenty of them I, I could name but some of these guys are so good because they speak the language of the board and the business and they understand actual risk and understand that cyber risk is a factor and it's part of the financial, the legal and all the other types of risk and it factors in. It's not the only deciding factor and if it is, run the hell away because your company don't know what it's doing, right? So, Raph, so let, let me flip the coin. What, yeah. what about from a technology perspective, what was your favorite technology over the last 20 years? Yeah, oh, so much. I'm gonna. I, I think my. I think my favorite. The one thing that if I if I if I go back to uh, uh, you know like what's the one thing that's made the biggest impact in cybersecurity? It's it's things like it related to single sign-on, uh, multi-factor authentication packages. Right. Those the ability to have a sign-on experience that requires less complexity less password memorization and allows us more access to more systems and kind of keeps a consistent identity for us. Uh, I think that has probably prevented more breaches and more serious issues or enabled them in some cases than, than, than we can measure. So there's no shortage of technology. The vendor market's like crazy out there, right? Thousands, <laughs> there's thousands of, you know, new startups all the time. And quite frankly, CISOs I think are having trouble surfing through it all. And there's just, it's just vendor overload at this point. They're just drowning in emails and texts and people have hit them up on LinkedIn. Um, and, it, and that's causing a whole nother communication problem in the industry. But I'll, I'll get to that later. But, you know, do we need more tech? I mean, <laughs> how are we supposed to manage all this stuff? How, how, what do you suggest that people do to navigate through this environment? Well, so I think, uh, do we need more tech? Uh, you know, part, part of me is like, <laughs> no, we've invented everything that we can, that we can use and probably about a million things more than we can use. But the reality is, yes, there's always going to be something that somebody invents or some new thing that's going to do some niche thing that we need done. I think it's the question of, I mean, I've, I've been to RSA, right? And it's, it's absolutely bonkers uh, how many new vendors there are each year. And this, this, it happens that many of them won't be there next year and even less than the year after of the new ones. Um, but I think we need the features that they bring to be developed. Uh, I think we need less vendors for, for sure. Uh, but I think it's sort of the necessary uh, you know, push and pull of, of our economy is that we get these, somebody says, I've got this crazy idea for this one use case. Nobody solves it. I'll do it myself. And so do we need more tech? 
realistically, no, we need way less. Uh, we need less vendors, but we need more comprehensive approaches to our technology solutions. I think I'll say. So can you explain the economy of features you've referenced repeatedly on your podcast? I listened to your podcast. It's awesome. And you. You, you referenced this uh, a few times in your interviews. Can you talk about that a little bit? So, yeah, um, I can't remember who I was talking to. I think it was my friend Jack that we were standing on the uh, uh, walkway between uh, the two Moscone centers uh, when they first opened the underneath. And I'm like, man, this is an economy of features. And, and we started, and it kind of stuck. Um, what, I'm, what I mean by that is there are so many companies out there that, it, that they are a they have fooled themselves into believing that they are a full-fledged, they will be perfectly viable as a company when really what they are is a feature looking for a product set to go integrate into. I had this guy, I'm pretty sure I'm never going to be allowed back into uh, um, the Gartner uh, security, cybersecurity thing in, 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 uh, in DC area because um, <laughs> I, did, I had this guy, I think he complained. Uh, I was walking a couple of employers ago, I was walking around and stopped in front of this booth and it was, you know, some really interesting concept. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. The guy, the guy is, this, you know, gentleman walks up and he goes, yeah, well, you know, gives me the pitch. I go, that's really awesome. I said, well, so who's your buyer? And he starts telling me about companies that they're trying to like, I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, who are you trying to get to buy you? Like, you know, you're not, you're clearly not trying to, like, you're not going to try to make customers. Like you're here to find a buyer as in somebody to give you money to go away and take your technology. And he's, we've had this debate. He's like, no, 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 we're totally viable. I'm like, no, you're absolutely, you are one feature. And this happened to be in an email platform. Like you do a specialized thing for email security that one of these big email providers has to look at and go, Oh, we should do that. Um, and that that's like this economy of features. We, we are via cybersecurity is built an economy uh, out of uh, companies that support like a single or a few niche features. And uh, we are, I mean, with COVID-19 running rampant right now and the economy in free fall, uh, we are about to see unprecedented shutdown in some of these companies that were simply never viable to begin with. And, um, It'll be the bigger, I've been saying, the bigger platform players will hopefully acquire these and make sense of them, although I've been wrong given the fact that I, that I uh, said some of the, uh, you know, had, some, had some bets on which ones would survive, uh, two of them no longer, well, largely gone. So, Hey, you mentioned COVID-19, and I know yeah. this has made things especially interesting for cybersecurity leaders and, and what they have to do and what they have to um adopt to like adoptability is huge in cybersecurity, as you know, so there's got to be a lot of flexibility and agility, uh, which is being, uh, you know, on display right now. Yeah. Um, what, what are the, some of the trends you think that will help support uh, getting through this pandemic? So I think a, a couple of things, right? We, the people problem, and we can address that in more detail in a second, but I think the people problem is going to continue. Um, you know, we, we are, um, we were, there's a lot of companies that simply weren't staffed for fully remote work, even though they could be. Uh, and that has caused a tremendous strain on these companies. I think they need to figure out how to function remotely, um, how to act uh, securely where in a distributed manner. And they were not set up for that. So I think what this is, this, this pandemic and this global health crisis uh, has caused uh, is, is them, these companies to think about that. And I think what, what's for that, the trend of, supporting a remote workforce and distributed uh, applications and data um, that companies have never thought about before or thought they could get away with not having to do. Suddenly, good morning, you're now fully distributed because your entire city is shut down. 
uh, or you do that or you simply go away, um, I think that's going to forever change the landscape of how cybersecurity is utilized. Uh, but there's going to be a ton of growing pains because I think what's happening is a lot of these companies are simply saying, I don't, I, you know, we got to make this happen. Um, our firewall currently is too restrictive. Our policies are too restrictive. You know, people can't print when they're at home, turn off all these policy, security policies. And that tendency in a panic is because they're not prepared is to simply disable security features that seem that like they're hindering business uh, and they're never coming back, folks. You know, once once you lose that ability, it's never coming back without a serious fight. Um, and, and I blame I blame ourselves partly for this because how did we not see this coming uh, in in those places where? And I know you know your businesses were telling you we're never going to be fully remote or you know nobody's ever even planning for that. But I mean, we've been talking about this forever in 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 regard in, in various you know CISO circles about you know what happens how do we go to a fully distributed workforce uh, in, in these some of these organizations so i think that's i think that's what's really that that trend of remote work is is uh, going to forever change um, hopefully when we on the other side of this uh, some things will go back to you know abnormal and some things will never yeah, go there's back still to those that. stubborn guys out there man there's old school dudes that just do not like people working from home they just yeah, hate well, it they just hate it they hate it they hate it, and they're just gonna they're gonna keep pushing it. I once had a uh, had an executive tell me not too long ago, so I've never seen I've never seen any study, I've never seen any exercise that showed me any kind of data that proved that people got more work done from home than they did in the office. So and then with it instantaneously, I handed him the study, and so he just you know he got infuriated. But I mean, it's just not uh, it's just it's not every case, right? And every case is different. I'm not saying this is be spread across the board, but. Man, it doesn't get enough attention, I don't think. So there's a, there's a, those of you that listen um, to other podcasts, uh, there's, you know, if you've ever read Freakonomics or Super Freakonomics, Dubner has, runs a podcast called Freakonomics Radio. Uh, there's an episode that I just listened to um, end of March. So it's a recent episode that talks about exactly this. And there, by the way, are positives and negatives to working from home. The negatives being social disconnection and loneliness and innovation, believe it or not, because there's no water cooler and ideas. You know, there's, you can't walk up to your buddy's desk and go, I got this crazy idea. I don't know how to do it, though. And they go, holy cow, it's brilliant. Let's do that, right? And they you kind of spitball whiteboard and get things done. That doesn't exist anymore uh, when you're fully distributed. Um, but productivity, yeah, absolutely. You know, again, people not stand, st- stopping by your desk every 30 seconds. You can focus and concentrate assuming you don't have a five-year-old that runs, uh, runs into your office or a dog that wants to sit on your lap or a cat that takes over. You know, I, I think you know, th- there's a lot to be said for that too. There has to be some type of interaction with the team. But I, I think, you know, like sometimes when people say, well, I, I, I'll look at, uh, I'll see executives, I'll hear this. I, I looked at the st- statistics and it seems to me that everybody wants to work from home on Monday and Friday. Well, in the New York City area, on Monday and Friday, traffic is horrendous. Okay, you could literally sit in traffic depending on where you live or your commute, whatever it is, you take the train. Every, a lot of people take the train in the New York area. You could do a four-hour round-trip commute. So you could spend four hours a day on Monday and Friday. God forbid there's bad weather, forget it, right? I mean, so, I mean, so would you rather the person work because, you know, during those four hours or, or, you know, would you rather them sit in traffic? Because, you know, that's basically what happens. And I say, well, well yeah, that kind of makes sense to me. And we kind of want that. You know, I mean, at least that's what I, that was my thinking. We kind of want people to have more time to work on because let's face it, a lot of people get up, they don't, those four hours that they would have sat in traffic, they actually work. They don't just sit around and say, okay, well, usually I'm sitting in traffic, so I'm not going to do anything or I'm going to do something else other than work. Usually they do work. 
And if, and if you look at the statistics in an organization, at least, you know, for me over at, when we were at J.P. Morgan Chase, we were closing more cases and we were handling more of the operational piece. You know, the people that are actually in some way, you know, describe making the donuts, you know, every day, pounding out the work that had to be done, right? Whether it's, whether it was filing SARS or closing cases or, you know, or getting to some type of disposition in an operational model, they were tended to do more work on those days if you allow them to work from home than they did if you had the, if they actually had to commute into work. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't know your thoughts. I mean, but I, I really feel like that was a big, that was a big deal. And, um, but you have to have a responsible workforce. You can't just have, I mean, these people, you have to have people that understand how to do this, right? Cause yeah. if you have an immature workforce, take advantage. Yep, there are. right. They'll, they'll simply sit at home and play Xbox all day. Um, or the opposite, which means that they'll get on there, you know, get up in the morning, grab a yeah. cup of coffee, sit down or a Mountain Dew in some cases. And I, and I don't like these technologies, but there are technologies out there today that obviously they, they know every click that you make on the computer. So they know if you're stagnant, they know if you're typing, they know if you're emailing, they know if you're surfing the web, they just can get a whole breakdown of your activity for the day. You know, I, yeah. I, I just don't think that big brother stuff really bodes well for. No, I don't think that's the solution either, but I mean, yeah. there's somewhere between I, I've, I've worked eight to nine thirty without looking up and, uh, or looking at daylight <laughs> or getting a, you know, standing up from my chair and, oh yeah, I logged into email and played video games all day. Like somewhere between those two guideposts <laughs> is where we need to be. Yeah. And, and I think finding a healthy balance uh, is difficult. It's not, it's not trivial. It's really not. Yeah, yeah. Fun conversation. All right, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, folks, but don't go away. We'll be right back with our special guest, the founder of Rabbit77 and host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast, Mr. Raphael Loss. You'll see me to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Context Information Security knows that your development and engineering teams move quickly. Security testing should empower them, not slow them down. What you need is a solution that integrates their objectives and supports the bottom line. Getting your product out while protecting your customers and your brand. While traditional penetration testing is a great way to assure your systems after they've been built, it doesn't work for everyone. That's why at Context, we offer continuous security testing to help you build it right the first time. In fast-moving environments, continuous security testing allows your team to focus on the things that matter. Secure, agile development, speed of innovation, and building security into your products and systems from the ground up. Context has been helping organizations tackle the most complex security challenges for more than 20 years. Visit us today at contextis.com to learn more about how we can help you. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization 
organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Sinet, S-I-N-E-T. Email is having an identity crisis. It's just too easy for attackers to spoof trusted brands or even the government. That's why over 80% of email attacks are based on fake identities. The solution is to stop the fakes before they get to the inbox. That's why enterprises use Valley Mail. It's a trusted identity-based email security solution. Find out if your domain can be spoofed and request a complete free phishing analysis at valleymail.com. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, the founder of Rabbit 77 and host of Down the Security Rabbit Hole podcast, Mr. Raphael Law. So, Raph, uh, you know, I think over the last few years, we've witnessed these countless experts decry a shortage of security professionals. And I've seen some crazy statistics out there and some crazy sort of projections. And, you know, I, well, you know, before I, <laughs> I, want, I don't want to put words in your mouth and give my, what do you think about it? Is this real? Is this real, this talent crisis? shortage of cybersecurity professionals, uh, but I think the shortage isn't as desperate as uh, some of us are, are making it out to be, mainly because there is still this mentality that we can solve the cybersecurity problem by throwing more bodies at it. Ladies and gentlemen, that is not the case. You cannot throw enough bodies uh, at a problem of this magnitude. Uh, when you've got you know, petabytes and exabytes of data to be examined, there are not enough analysts you can hire, I promise. Um, so. I think, yes, the problem, the, the, the hiring and staffing problem exists because there are simply not enough people to staff these 
um, these jobs in the current model. That's my caveat, in the current model. I think uh, we have tried outsourcing. It has failed us, but I think we have to try again. Because that is, you know, as serv- the service provider model, the partnered service provider model, the security as a service model. Um, I mean, we use we use compute as a service. Why the hell isn't security a service yet? Um, that's the way to go forward because you cannot hire enough people. You can't staff them, uh, and you can't keep them long enough for for to get value out of them. It, it's just, I mean, it's a fact. Talk to somebody that runs HR. Uh, it takes what uh, eight to nine months to get value out of some productivity out of somebody you hire. Maybe faster if you're a really really well oiled organization. Say six months before somebody becomes fully productive. Maybe three months if you're really good, right? Or you can get you know um, you know try not to solve the problem yourself. And I think that the the other part of this is that technology is is here to help. It really is here to help because mechanization of our uh, have tech do the things that we can that are the repetitive tasks while humans focus on the things that um, computers can't do and I'm sorry but AI is not going to be the solution you know AI machine learning that those buzzwords that half of you security vendors use that is not the solution to security in any near-term <laughs> horizon um, you know there's not going to be suddenly a, a computer program you're going to install or a, a, a app you're going to feed all your data into that will then make intelligent decisions without a human that's stupid um, it hasn't really even been uh, applicable to cybersecurity yet. I mean, you know, it hasn't really. Yeah. I mean, I know it's like the focus of the RSA conferences. And look, it's cool to see what the future holds and, and to learn about, you know, this but stuff. But I just don't see any application of it really in, in a really successful way uh, in the industry right now. So machine learning certainly has its place, right? Oh, that's but we have to be yeah. realistic yeah. of it. We have to be realistic, realistic about its capabilities. Um, Talking about AI, true artificial intelligence, right? True yeah, I mean, AI. Right. So like the whole concept that AI is an independent thinking machine is dumb. Like that's not, that, that is, we are not anywhere close to that. Meaning that it's not going to make decisions for you without you putting some input in it. Um, and I, I may, I don't know, maybe I'm just a naysayer and I don't know enough to be, in, to, to speak intelligently on this because I don't, but I, I, from everything I've seen, it, we're not, we're not there yet, or, or maybe we'll never get there. Um, you know, and I think, the, the, the role of the, the human, the person over the next decade is going to be to be enabled, uh, call us a, you know, kind of like a, a cyber, will truly be a cyber workforce, will be enabled by technology to, to do amazing things. Uh, and, and I think that's what's going to be, that's what's going to be propelling us forward, not just hiring more bodies. So when you think about, we do have a shortage of, of talent, I think, in the industry. I'm not sure if, it, if there's, you know, some of these projections of, of open seats in the millions exceed the number of seats that people already sit in today. I don't know if it's that, you know, if it's that bad, but do you, uh, do you, what's, what's the solution to the problem? So I, I think really, you know, learning how to partner and how to mechanize, like what things as an enterprise security professional and a leader, what things do you, do you do yourselves? What's your core competency? What things do you co-source or, or a, you know, a product that you buy to, to mechanize your people and make them more efficient? And what things do you simply hand off to somebody else to do? Like companies are building their own security operations center, their own SOCs, these, these giant uh, analysis stacks. Everybody's built their SIM you know, wrong. Um, I've, I've run a recent podcast with um, uh, you know, the, the quintessential expert on that, Anton Chavakin, and we t- talked a little bit about the SIM for about, about an hour. And... Uh, 
and and it's interesting because uh the the sim you know everybody we're supposed to have a sock and it, logs being fed to some analytics engine and all that's supposed to spit out all the bad things that are, it, it doesn't quite work that way i mean you know garbage in garbage out right so it, we need we need more uh intelligent applications of the workforce through uh mechanizations and technology and then intelligently partner for the things that we can't do like i i fully believe that most companies should not try to build their own sock um, with, with, with some rare exceptions of the large fortune 100. But if you're trying to build your own sock and you think you can do it better than, you know, some of the service providers that are doing it at, at scale 10 X what you're doing, uh, I think you're at best delusional at worst. Uh, <laughs> you know, you, 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 you're hurting yourself. Uh, I love, I love it when people just speak the truth on this show. I love it. I think, you know, that's why people yeah. respect the show. People <laughs> respect the show because of the transparency. They trust us, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, having spent a big part of your early careers in, in, in application and software security, what lessons did you take away from that stretch of your career that you can apply now, especially when you talk about things like the SOC and, and the SIM and, you know, the rules that come in and things like that? Um, uh, yeah, how does it all so, come together? Well, I'll tell you the, the, the things that I learned then uh, that, I, that I, I hold front of mind and near and dear to me. Uh, I once went to a soft, you know, uh, ran, did a pen test against an application, took the results fed it back to a bunch of developers and basically try to browbeat them into making better code. They're like, we don't understand what you're saying. Show us what the newer code, what the better code should look like. And I went, well, I'm not a developer. I'm like, you know, that's your job. And the guy went, well, I'm not a security guy. And I went, right. Damn it. (laughs) So I think, look, here's the, here's the fact of the matter. Um, There's entirely too many security professionals that have never done the thing that they're advising people on. Uh, software security tends to be, uh, I don't know how it is today because I've been kind of disconnected from that piece strategically. But yeah, um, it to me some of these consultants that come in yeah. who've never been battle tested, who've never been yes. in the trenches, never handled an incident in their life are telling these other organizations how to set up their incident response program. I mean, from soup to nuts, you know, from end to end. And it's just, well, wow, that's, dude, that, that's kind know. of the problem with the, I got a college degree in cyber. Suddenly I'm, I'm going to go be a consultant and tell you how to do your, how to do security at your company. Like, uh, no kid, go back, go back and get some practical experience. One of the reasons I, I really think that, uh, and this goes full circle where we started. I really think you should, if you're going to be a cybersecurity professional, you should write some code, even if it's poorly, like I did, uh, you should go work a help desk. You should learn how networks work, that you should learn how circuit boards work, that you should learn how operating systems and client server and all the tech underlying technology works. When you get that, you're, you're going you're gonna to be able to go go get a base level of experience and security to understand how these things are interacting because security really is about exploiting the interactions between other parts other parts of the system in a way to do something that's not supposed to be authorized, right? And yeah. how do you know what that is if you, if you don't know what it's supposed to do or how it's supposed to function? So look, you're a big problem solver. You've attached some, uh, attacked some pretty big, pretty big problems in your career. So what, what problem are you, are you putting your expertise to now these days? Well, uh, funny you should say that. Um, taking the path uh, of trying to solve uh, for this, we, we've got a perfect storm. We have a workforce shortage. We have a dramatic sud- and sudden work from uh, distributed workforce, distributed uh, technology, uh, cloud computing. Um, a lot of companies were mid-stride, you know, moving their organizations to cloud. Nobody, very few companies, I think, are going to be fully cloud. So there's always going to be some remnant of, of uh, legacy. And so I, what I'm trying to solve right now is, you know, that, that thing I said about 
how do we apply people? How do we solve the people problem is how do we, how do we part, how do we create a service provider? I'll call it a security service provider that stands alongside those companies that help you manage your cloud, that help you manage your finances, that help you manage other parts of your business that simply integrate in, become part of your organization and do it in a non-disruptive way, but in a way that, means that you and your peers in the industry all don't have to hire a hundred cybersecurity people to do the same job across every company. Uh, and so we can get some efficiency, some scale, some not some true knowledge buildup. And so I'm back on the cyber uh, security provider side, uh, tackling cloud and cybersecurity on a, a fairly grand scale uh, from, from a think about it, security as a service as a, you know, the MSP model, everybody, I, I don't use that term because everybody hated it, you know, five, six years ago, because it was basically your mess for less, as my friend Jen once said. Um, you know, we'll do same thing you do, just cheaper offshore with people that have no idea what, you, what your business does, and that's going to be successful. Not. Uh, but this kind of cooperative model is something I'm trying to tackle and, and for some people it'll work, for, for others it won't because they'll still want to build their own thing. But once I think we let go of our egos and our and our desire to build these massive domains for ourselves and pad our uh, resumes, we'll realize and acknowledge the fact that we can't solve uh, the, the problem uh, that's it, too big on our own. And so how do we partner with the right providers, the right technologies, uh, and the right experts? Um, and so that's kind of what I'm tackling. And we'll see what happens. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm betting my future on it. So fingers crossed, folks. Nice. So look, before we go, I can't let you go without asking you about your podcast. So, you know, tell us a little bit about your podcast and, and, and what you do, some of the things you talk about, some of the guests you have. Um, it's really, and by the way, please send me the link to that one you just spoke about uh, regarding the, the, the SIM. I want to listen to that. Uh, I want to listen to that episode. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that was episode. Uh, I'll look it up in a second. Um, so the podcast. Um, <laughs> I started it back in September of I think uh, 2011. Uh, oh, wow! Because you know there was a discussion being had about should the CISO be technical or business savvy. I got a bunch of people on uh, on an episode to record it, and I said, you know, I could, I could, I could do this. Um, the catalyst for it really was the fact that at the time there was a ton of really good security podcasts. Most of them you couldn't listen to at the office, unfortunately, because there was, you know, drinking, there was curse words, there were other hilariously inappropriate uh, materials. And I said, you know, I, we've got a scale problem. Like, how do we transfer knowledge and bring people you know, that they don't go to conference, they can't get go, go to a conference, they can't have hallway con, they can't aren't on Twitter. How do we bring these conversations directly to them? And I thought, you know, I know enough people. I, I, I can, I've got friends that can join in and, and I, I can convince others to, to kind of hop on and talk and share. And um, that's kind of what happened. And then and suddenly I've, I've, you know, uh, gosh, almost... Uh, Almost nine years later, here uh, coming up on episode just published three hundred eighty-eight. That's the uh, that's the one about the sim with Anton. Wow. The sim is dead. Long may it live. It's called um, an episode. So, but there's I mean, I'm three hundred eighty-eight episodes numbered in. There's probably two, three dozen unnumbered episodes in there that were just like live from or whatever. Right. Uh, when I worked for HP, I published a bunch of those and, and some other stuff. So um, it's it's a labor of love. I you know it's not something that I'm ever going to go make a make a business out of. Well, it's not, it's not easy to crank out 400 episodes of content. I no, mean, it's, it's enormously difficult. I mean, I know how difficult it is, um, you know, to produce quality guests week after week after week, 
and get information <laughs> that people want to talk about, uh, talk about, want to listen to. It's really tough. So congratulations to you. I mean, well, I've, I've been blessed, right? I've, yeah, I've been blessed. I've, I've, you know, James has been with me for a while. He's got some, uh, he's taking, you know, he's got, uh, <laughs> he's got a lot of family commitments lately. So getting him on to kind of go back to co-host has, has been, uh, uh, has been a little challenging, but I, I try to record when I can. Um, he's been great to kind of help me co-host these shows. Um, Sean and, and Michael back when they, you know, they were every day, every other day guests was great. I've been blessed with the fact that people j- jump on the show and they're and that you guys listen and you spread the message. I mean, we're getting close to thirty thousand uh, consistent downloads a month. That's that's a pretty big number to have for four when I only publish four times a month. Um, you know, average episodes coming up on three to four thousand downloads. That's I mean, I'm pretty proud of that. I don't do like any advertising or anything, and I'll take uh, I don't take advertisers. You know, you never hear an ad on my show you know, companies can buy an episode to come talk about something they want, but ultimately I can still refuse their money if I think their content sucks. So, um, I'm excited about it. I'm going to keep doing it until, uh, until you guys stop listening or until, you know, somebody throws a, uh, a wrench into my, into my schedule that I can't, that I can't <laughs> overcome. But, um, I've been asked well, before whether I'd sell the property, uh, to somebody and, I, and I've kind of said, nah, that's all right. I'm not trying to make, you know, I'm not trying to make money on it. This is this, I started this with the notion of for the community. I'm going to take it that way. Awesome. Raf, thanks so much for coming on the show, man. I really appreciate you. We've got to have you back often. I, 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 you know how to find me and I'd, I'd you know, there's no <laughs> shortage do. of getting me to talk. <laughs> I, do, I do. I do. All right, folks, it's time to go. But before we do, I want to remind our listeners to visit the cybersecurity hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the cybersecurity hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 